Hello, my dear podcast listeners. Welcome to the Raise V Startup X podcast, the podcast that is able to further unlock the potential of startups by giving them a larger stage to share their story and value proposition and connect them with a broader audience. If you're an investor or strategic partner, you'll be able to listen to an audible startup pitch remotely and retain their contact details right here. For fellow entrepreneurs working on or aspiring to initiate a startup, be sure to get all the ins and outs on how to start, build, pivot, and grow your business. In this episode, I will be talking to Monica Abarca, serial entrepreneur and CEO of Kaira. This beautiful lady shares the lessons with us on how she evolved from being an engineer and working on research projects to suddenly wearing multiple hats in her startup. Monica also talks about the importance of having sponsors or people really rooting for you and supporting you on this journey. That and a lot more in a bit. Monica Abarca is an entrepreneur, megatronics engineer, and researcher in robotics. She is the CEO of Kaira, which is a startup that works with exponential technologies such as drones and modules for environmental monitoring. She's also a co-founder of Bloomer Health Tech, a startup based in Boston that develops technology in women's clothing for cardiovascular monitoring. All of these projects have been awarded public and private funding, generated research publications, and intellectual property patents. Without further ado, Monica, welcome on the show. So after our initial chats uh, offline, I got even more excited to, to have you on the show to learn more about your experiences and to share that with our audience. So very glad to, to have you on. I've given our listeners a very short introduction, but obviously there's a lot more to share about you as a person, a serial entrepreneur and an engineer. So why don't we start with who is Monica and what startups are you involved with at the moment? Well, uh, difficult to define myself in, in, <laughs> in uh, short words, but yeah, I'm a mechatronics engineer. So that's the first thing I say, because it has been a difficult time to start this career and to be able to finish it. No, it's not a, an, an easy career, but yeah, so I'm a mechatronics engineer. I'm a researcher as well in robotics. And now with the last years, I started to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> I think this last path has been the most difficult of my life so far. But yeah, it has been good to always learn new things and start new journeys. Right. And you just wanted to leave out the fact that you're also the co-founder and executive director of the Mars Society in Peru? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, I was part of Mars Society since 2013, I think. I was part of the first crew from Peruvian students to go to the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, in the United States, which is a station that allows students to do research that is about the possibility of humans going to Mars. Right? Yeah, and since then we started the Mars, the Mars Society chapter in Peru, and that's how I got involved in the last years. Very interesting. And you have started most of these ventures at the same time, correct? Yes, so actually Kaira, which is the startup I'm working on right now in Peru, and Bloomer Tech, that is a startup that is based in Boston, the US, they both started in 2015. 
after I joined uh, Singularity University for their graduate studies program. So that's where I change, kind of changed my shift or my interest from research to, to innovation, right? And that's how the, those ventures started. This is very interesting to share with our audience as well. Mia, what made you decide to take on these entrepreneurial and research activities in various industries? And how are you then, as an entrepreneur and C-level executive, able to define the priorities and execute efficiently? So first, what made me decide to, to start this? Well, I think it was a combination of understanding that the research that I have been performing or the theories, design that I have been making during my uh, thesis, that is actually how it started, could be taken into the reality and could be transformed into a product that can help the society, can help the environment and can help actual people. And that's how, well, it was a combination of that and the combi and also finding the right partners to, to do that, right? Maybe if I was alone, it would have been much more difficult to make a decision, but having the right partners that were actually my professors back then, my thesis advisors, made me more confident into taking that decision, having them with me in this, in this venture. Okay. And what about the variety of industries? I mean, you're in healthcare, you're in space, you're in drone technology. Is there any personal interest in those various industries or did you act upon opportunities that you identified? So I think my life so far has been taking on the opportunities that I have been able to, to see and to apply, right? So this has been great because it has given me the chance to see different aspects in different industries and also get to know a lot of people with much more greater experience than me but learn from them and I think every step that I took was the beginning of the next one right so maybe if I had had not been involved in Mars Society I would not have been interested in Singularity University and then maybe I would not have started Kaira as an example no that's how I think my life has turned out. Right. Thank you for that. So here you are, an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, a researcher, an engineer, and a C-level executive. So how are you then able to define the appropriate priorities and then execute efficiently? Well, so my first priority now, because the truth is you cannot be 100% in every aspect or part of your life, right? So my first priority now is uh, Kaira. I'm involved most of my time in leading the company and dealing with clients and going to the field and so on. Right? So that would be my first priority. Then I have Bloomer Health Tech that I have less responsibilities there, but I have also great co-founders that take all the hard work in, in Boston where the company is located. Yeah, and then with Mars Society, I have not been so much involved in the last years, but I try to talk every now and then with the people that are now in charge just to make sure that it continues in the path or grows in the path that we started it some years ago. Tell us a bit more about how you have evolved from sort of a hardcore researcher and engineer to a serial entrepreneur and then leading large teams. How was that process for you? Well, it was a process that took maybe some time for me to adjust because before starting Kaira, I was also part of another company, no, but uh, part of the team, right? Of a company that worked in the mining industry. I think 
that's where my skills trying to lead teams started because I worked in the field and I worked as a field engineer together with technicians to solve problems in the big machines of mining, right? So maybe I think that's how, because you have to develop other kinds of skills to, to try to lead teams, right? And then when we started Kaira, our first challenge was to find the right people to start with because you have to make your technology better, take it to the clients, and try to get momentum of the startup. And that's how we started choosing the right people for the team, making it grow slowly. But now, yeah, we're a team of 15 people, almost working in Kaira. What would you say were your biggest lessons there in that evolution or in you evolving into a serial entrepreneur leading large teams? What were the biggest lessons for you? Mm, so I think one of the biggest lessons was to have patience <laughs> because you are not a big company that has an HR department that can look into a lot of possible curriculums and then make a pre-selection for you and so on, right? So you have to work with what you have, with your own resources, trying to ask people who they think could be a good fit for your company, go and talk to them, convince them to join you because it's, this is not a, a completely safe work that you're going to get your paycheck I don't know, for a lot of years from now and get a normal professional career that you grow each month or each year. But it was a challenge, right? So we had to also sell them the idea. <laughs> it's like talking to an investor, you know, to your first employees. You also have to sell them the idea of being part of Kaidan, how they can grow in the company. So the biggest, one of the biggest challenges for you as a starting entrepreneur was basically recruitment and attracting the right talent. So the right talent or people that believe in the same vision and mission and stand behind it. And you sort of want to get the buy-in of these people that are qualified and are willing to take less than, for instance, with a more developed company or an established company. Yeah. So that was one of your biggest challenges. And what did you learn there? As in, what was the lesson that you got out of it and perhaps you want to share with fellow entrepreneurs? I think that one of the main lessons there, and I'm not sure if this applies to other countries, because Peru is a country that usually imports technology and uses technology from other parts of the world, right? I'm not saying that anyone in Peru does or creates technology, but it's, it's not the usual, right? So what I learned is... Um, at least in the engineering field, mechatronics, mechanics, electronics, engineers were actually eager to work with us because they were able to perform what they have been learning in university or in their masters and actually create stuff, do stuff, rather than going to a normal established companies where they would be more maybe in the commercial area or not creating things, right? So this was a, a thing that we learned and that actually continues to this day. We have a lot of people applying for jobs or internships that we have in the company. So they're willing to join you because they can actually test and try a lot more in, instead of applying it directly at an established company. Their skills. Yeah, yeah, they can. I'm not sure if I gave the right idea, but they can apply their skills in the hardcore engineering part that they learned in, in school or in the university, right? So you're, you're giving them the opportunity to gain those skills and experiences, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And then sometimes they also see this as a stepping stone to applying to masters or doctorates in other countries that look for these skills you know, to be developed. Usually these kind of skills you develop it either on a research laboratory or in companies like ours or other startups that develop and create technology. Okay, that makes sense. So what you're basically saying is the biggest challenge for you as a starting entrepreneur was to get the right talent and recruitment, basically. But the way you actually recruit them is through sharing your vision, pitching to them as if they were investors, just like you mentioned, uh, but also convincing them or telling them that you can guide them in that learning process. So you're providing capabilities, technological capabilities, you're allowing them to sort of like train with you yeah. so that they can apply it again in larger established companies if that's what they seek to do later on in their career. Yeah. So let's go back to your startup, Kaira, and dive into that proposition a bit more. What is the value proposition of Kaira? Uh, so at Kaira, we want to take care of the public health and improve the quality of life of people by monitoring environmental and air pollution. So we work in three main pillars that are uh, prevention, we work together with governmental institutions. We allow them to have data that backs them up when they want to create policies to mitigate air pollution. We also do inspection together with private companies and entities that enforce the environmental law. And we try to create awareness of the problem of air pollution by sharing the results of the monitoring that we do with the citizens and empowering them with the data. So what makes the value proposition of Kaira so unique? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> First, I will go into the technology. So what we have is a low-cost technology compared to normal official reference stations that can cost up to $300,000 per station. What we are uh, trying to make a difference is in the way today the air pollution is measured because what you don't measure, you cannot control. So we try to provide tools that are not only low cost, but also high quality and with the right capabilities for the governmental institutions, for companies to monitor air quality. And we also have a strong sense into giving the information to the people, to empower them to be part of this environmental revolution. And what impact is the company set out to have if you look at your mission and vision? So we're looking into becoming by 2025 the most important platform for air quality and environmental monitoring in the South American region. To achieve that, what we have to do is put a lot of our monitors out there, a lot of our drones out there monitoring, and then becoming more of a software company, a data company with the information that we're gathering. What target markets and industries are you addressing at the moment? So we're working two main industries. We're working in the mining, oil and gas, energy industries. They're kind of all related. They have to comply with environmental laws. They have sometimes problems with the communities or social problems with people living nearby because of the environmental issues that they, they have to comply. And the other part that we work with is the governmental institutions, with municipalities and regional governments, because it's their duty to provide a healthy environment for their communities. 
Can you tell us a bit more about the process of going from developing an MVP to actually selling it to a customer? Was there any active business development involved? Okay, so the first part was to yeah, not be afraid to to show your, your first MVP you know? because maybe it's, it's kind of ugly, it's not like the best product or the final product that you envision that you want to show but it's functional. So you have to get it out there to test it, to have the feedback from potential customers, to use it for demos and, and so on, right? So that was the first step. Then with that feedback, you get to improve that version and actually start your way into becoming a, a commercial product. So yeah, that was in the technical side. And in the commercial side, I think one of our biggest advantages was to start working with big companies or important governments, that's the right word, but just being able to working with reference institutions, it was good because not only it made us better in our procedures and what we needed to have as a company, more as, a, as an institution, protocols and, and everything, but also because they are able, once they see your product and they see what you're offering to them and how it's good for them, they can talk to the other institutions in their field no, about the, the solution. No? So it's kind of a word of mouth that they can do for you. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that you've most probably applied design thinking principles. So really building an MVP and then going out to the market, testing it to validate it and coming back to actually create a, a second mock-up or a second MVP and then actually allowing for demos to be made alongside the customers or potential customers. So you can then create use cases or show them what the potential use cases are. You also create a low barrier entry to, for instance, a pilot project for the customers to trust you to learn more about the technology and what the ultimate influence is going to be in their organization. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh -huh. Why is it so important to create or have the option of a demo for a customer in your case? Well, because we go back to the, the point I mentioned earlier that the Made in Peru brand is not so well seen, maybe, or not seen, but well, actually it's well seen because people like things that are made in Peru, but maybe not well trusted. So you have to be patient and show them what you have, show them how it works, maybe try it one, two times or a period of time. It's a longer commercial process than other brands or other products that maybe their, their process is much easier because they come from other countries that the technology is almost validated because the origin of the technology, right? Yeah, so I think... I think that's what happened here. And if we go back to business development, looking at the technology that you're providing as a proposition, I can only assume that not every potential customer is aware of what it can do. So did you find yourself being more of an educator and proactively approaching potential clients or were there clients, for instance, governmental bodies already looking into this concept of drone technology? Well, we actually, I think our timing was also right. That is also an important part of starting a company, the, the timing, because the drone technology was growing in Peru when we started. So 
maybe it was not so hard to to talk about this this theme but still since it was recently starting then maybe people didn't know all of the potential applications all of the use cases that they can have for the technology what the benefits are so you have to show them and also from a a legal standpoint or from not legal maybe from a regulatory standpoint air pollution and environmental issues were not much seen or maybe taken care in the previous government but in the actual government it has been one of the priorities and that's also what sets an example for all of the public institutions and the private companies right when you have the main government saying that this is an issue and that has to be taken care of and today also helps our to accomplish our, our mission and vision. So you basically need to have an anchor, in this case, the governmental body or an institution that allows you to implement that use case with them or pilot projects. And that sets the stage for other customers to start approaching you or trusting you to be able to implement the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's not like a commercial product or any type of product that you say you buy this and then you're going to save x percent in operations right there's a much easier kind of sale no? because you see here right right now the benefits but when talking about the environmental issues then it's talking about the people right it's talking about how this affects public health how this is a problem for certain people living in areas with much lower levels of lower quality of of air so if you don't have studies that support that then it's more difficult to sell that solution makes sense and if you look at your route to market timeline from the moment you finish your first or your adapted mvp to actually implementing it as a pilot project with your first customer the governmental body what was the exact duration there oh So it was about uh, maybe more than one year, approximately, yeah. More than a year. Would you say that's the standard for these type of propositions, Mm. meaning technology? Yeah, I think it's a long process, especially if it's a hardware product. You have to do many versions to get to the right one, the one that is actually ready for commercial use. Oh, so this is including the entire MVP process, also the first one, and then validating it in the market? Yeah. Okay, so that's including the first step until actually getting it to the customer. Yeah, yeah. I think a year and a half Yeah, from the start, from showing them the first prototype that we had and then giving them the commercial product ready for installation. A year and a half, that's interesting. So... Can you tell me a bit more on how you're running a startup for a year and a half without getting that first customer in? So how did you sort of like survive as a startup for the first year and a half? And how we just spoke about maintaining the motivation and attracting the right people. How were you then able to keep that, you know, belief in your vision and product? So we were able to survive because of not only the investors that we have in Qaeda, but also because of the funding that we were able to get from research institutions, national research institutions that actually promote the use of technology for innovation and how they were able to give us funds for this purpose, right? So I think 
those were our two main sources of, of income for the first two years and how that got us in the path no, to having a commercial product and then becoming sustainable ourselves, right? How stressful was that, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, very stressful. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you have to be very careful with what you spend and achieve your deadlines. Not only for, because of the trust that investors have in you, but also because of the people that you have been employing in your company, right? You also create, and that's, I'm still in this line from my co-founder, Carlos, but you also create a company to give people jobs and give them a, a sense of purpose in maybe their, their start of their career, whatever stage they are, but it's not easy. No? You feel responsible for them as well. Yeah, yeah, you create, you start creating a, a small family, yeah. Have you been able to manage your sort of like stress levels over time as an entrepreneur? I can only imagine in the beginning it was more stressful than it is now, I guess. Maybe that's my assumption. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are challenges every now and then. Uh, I think it's kind of a roller coaster. No? You have times in which you're on top and everything is doing great and everything and you have a, a lot of clients and then maybe there's a rough patch that you have to still continue pushing the car. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, the stress levels are kind of constant between those up and downs. How do you keep yourself motivated in that process? Mm, well... I think that the motivation comes or gets more strong when we get to know more people that root for us, that are waiting to have uh, our products, uh, working with them, that are also very enthusiastic about the pollution and so on. I think that's, that's the motivation that we get, kind of. That means a lot, right? Really being able to help and people trusting you, that is a big motivating factor on itself. Yeah. What about the technologies you're using for your propositions? Can you take us through that? Yeah, so we have mainly two types of hardware technology that we work on. We have drones, drones for environmental monitoring, and we have also low-cost IoT modules for air quality monitoring. So what these equipments have in common is the use of sensors for gas and particulate matter monitoring. And the third part that is kind of the most important part of this technology package is the, the software, right? where you get the air quality information in real time, where you see the pollution status in the area that you live in and where the institutions that are our clients and use the software can actually see all the trends, uh, the trends of pollution daily, monthly, or yearly periods of time. And for real-time monitoring, do you also use satellites or satellite information? Uh, no, no. So far we use uh, the 3G or 4G network, mobile network, mainly for, for both of the, of the products. Offline, we have spoken about how you collect, synthesize, and share data with the government with regards to air contamination. This, on its turn, creates awareness and empowers citizens to take actions themselves and allows companies to contribute to improve the environment. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So, yeah, what we are uh, working on is 
maybe the technology is not so much important, but what is important is the information that, that this technology on the field gives to the institutions first, because they are able to see all of the historical data, are able to see in which days the air pollution maybe was not so good, and what actions they can take upon that, right? And that's the most, also another important part in the process because, okay, I told you earlier that it's important to measure something, to take actions and control it, right? So we don't want to stay just in monitoring and giving data, but we want to work together with the institutions to be able to start action plans that help mitigate air pollution and try to eradicate this problem in the areas they can take action. Do you give them onboarding trainings to be able to translate the data? Yeah, usually we work with environmental areas of the institution, so they have people that know how to read the data. The training that we give them is more on the use of software, and we also give them like a summary, a monthly summary of their air quality information that we get, but they are able to see all of the data just from the software. And has a team or the government been able to measure progression or concrete results because of the data shared? Yes. So, for example, I am in, in Lima City, Lima is the capital of, of Peru. We work with the municipality of Lima. Uh, we have a network of 12, yeah, 12 modules with them. And we have been monitoring before the mandatory social isolation due to COVID-19, during and now after the mandatory isolation finished. And that that data has been useful for the municipality to start their work into, they published an action plan of 14 concrete actions that they are going to start promoting around air pollution mitigation. So we're talking about maybe making more green spaces, you know, actually Lima is a city more for cars than for bicycles. So we have, they are already planning and implementing a network for, for bicycles to, to drive safely. Uh, they are also looking into taking areas that were just for cars and then transforming it them into areas for just people walking and those kind of things that will allow to reduce air pollution in maybe critic areas of, of Lima. Okay, so because of the data that you shared, of Kara shares, the government is, is able to define or develop follow-on steps to reduce contamination in the air and create awareness for citizens to contribute to the same actions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And is there an open source element to your propositions? Yes. So thanks to the UNICEF Innovation Fund, we are able to make our software, you know, the Kaidanov software, the basic version, uh, open source. And it's not only about opening and giving the software to, to other developers to, to, to try it and, and use it, but it's also about getting the feedback from them, you know, because we, the open source community is a very powerful community. They have a lot of knowledge, they have a lot of very experienced people that can help us in our journey to make a much robust and better software. So yeah, I think it's a good plan maybe for companies to try to look what they can make open source in their technologies. And are all business propositions open source? No, just the basic version of our software is is open source, which means air quality map that you can use if, if 
you have your own module you know, to see the data of their quality in your in the neighborhood. But yeah, the, the advanced version is, is not open source, but the advanced version is for clients that use our software for historical data and for other functions that we're working on, such as prediction of for quality in the spatial area and also in time, so before, 48 hours in the future, how is their quality going to, to behave. So if we look at uh, Kaira as a startup, in what startup phase would you say you're in right now? So we're in kind of in a, in a mix of two phases. So we're growing in, in Peru. We're extending our network not only in Lima, but also in other regions of the country because also the equipment and air quality also behaves differently in different altitudes. Now, Peru is a very kind of a geographical laboratory you get a lot of different areas and different altitudes and different climate conditions so we're able to test and take our solutions to different parts of geography and we're also working into expanding to other countries we actually have previous conversations with partners in ecuador possibly in colombia to take our solution to other countries in south america Okay, so what I hear you saying is that you are expanding your product portfolio, you're expanding your sales channels, but also regional reach within Peru. And Kaira is looking for international expansion as well. Yeah. Okay. Any specific strategies you are currently working on, like short-term, mid-term, long-term? I just heard you say by 2030, you want to be the chosen platform to work on technology and impact. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so our main strategy is in the regulatory side because we know that our technology is a new technology, an alternative way of monitoring our quality. But Peru and other countries in the world have made it legal to use this kind of technologies for commercial use. But we are trying to see or trying to work with other countries as well in order to make this regulatory process easier and also established because we need that process in order to be a a good choice for air quality monitoring. The regulation mostly allows what are called reference and equivalent methods for air quality monitoring. Those are one of the main standards, but there's a new trend for the use of alternative methods that includes remote sensing, for example, from satellites that include low-cost sensing, such as our technology, and other types of monitoring techniques that are allowed in the national protocols for air quality monitoring, right? Because you need that to have a more, from a legal standpoint... The right to use it for more use cases, possibly? Yeah, for more use cases, because then you just monitor for reference information, our referential information. But if you have in your country these alternative methods approved to use, then you have much more use cases for different institutions to apply that. So are you working on that in-house together with a legal team or are you seeking to work with external parties to work on that together? Well, we definitely need also external stakeholders. What we think has been good or is is good for the region is that there's a Pacific Alliance that is an alliance that Peru is part of and other 
countries of the region, Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, in which they share their regulatory achievements or, or advances, and that's a good start point for other countries to also have this in their laws. Yeah, so in the region, I think only Peru, Chile, and maybe Ecuador as well have this, but well, Brazil, Colombia, and other countries as well need to get on board with this new way of monitoring air quality that is approved in other parts of the world and that even in the US, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is also looking into this kind of technologies. So what I hear you saying is that policy development or the adoption of drone technology is low in some countries because of policy development around or regulatory around the use cases of drone technology. And to be able to expand internationally, if that's the ambition of Kaira, obviously that needs to, to happen. And those conversations need to, to be there. There needs to be more policy development and adoption of drone technology in other countries as well. Yes, not only drone technology, but also air monitoring techniques. Mm-hmm. And what's your involvement as a startup in, for instance, that alliance, what you just spoke about? Well, we're not a direct part of this alliance, but what we try to do is to start working with the other countries because you create momentum, you create people, you have people talking about the technology, and then maybe the politicians see that there is a need to see that as well and see how they can work towards having not only our technology, but other kinds of technology being used for air quality monitoring. Right. So as a strategy, you are looking into advancing air monitoring techniques. And if you look at particular resources Kyra is currently looking to source to either scale or to further develop those propositions, what would that be? Techniques. Well, of course, what we need is more governmental institutions on board with air quality monitoring in Peru, because this sets an example for other countries in the region, um, sharing the results with them, because that's also a great way to, to start the conversation, to share the results that they have with the solutions that they are implementing. Okay, if we go back to the initial phases of your startup, what were the key strategic drivers to get to markets? Well, I think one key strategic driver was having a strong network knowing the right people that are that could be involved in this solution, that could be ruling or that could be needing uh, this solution in the institutions, and then being able to receive us and to see what we have to offer and to test it in the fields. Yeah, so it's not easy to knock the door of these people, but I think when you have the right network, you can get to them. Yeah, I think that was one of the main points for us. Just to summarize, the key strategic drivers of the company was really to get those initial customers in or pilot projects in to be able to scale and show trust towards other potential customers. Yeah, so another part is the technology itself, of course, the development of drone technology to be able to work in different altitudes, different geographical locations. Most of drone technology are developed to work at sea level or at low altitudes, but when we're talking about the mining industries, talk about places that are rural areas, the technology to work well in those areas. Yeah, that and capability that we develop for real-time information for the customers to 
be able to see how things are going in real time was also a good uh, way to sell our product. To summarize, so it's all about product development, making sure that the technology is of utmost quality and fully sort of market proof, having it tested in the market, adjusting it, and then creating those demo services, uh, initial pilot projects to get it into the market. And also the capability development around adoption of these technologies. Yes. Okay. Um, in the beginning of this talk, you mentioned a key challenge, which was for you on a personal level, but also as a startup recruitment and talent. Were there any other challenges present for Kaira that you had to deal with? And the second question would then be, how did you or the team overcome that? So the first is, what other challenges were there for Kaira aside to recruitment and attracting talent? Yeah. So maybe one other challenge was finding the right well, first, finding investors at all, because this is not Silicon Valley or a place where there are a lot of investors looking to where to invest money. But finding investors was a first challenge. People that, that could see themselves uh, investing into startups that are high-risk investments. And then also finding the right investor, because it's not only about the, the money, which of course is important to keep the company going, but having the right investor to introduce you to the right people, to give you the right advices that you need, and to help you lead in the company and also share your vision, the mission of the startup. I think uh, you're making a very good point there. Can you tell us a bit more about your selection process in terms of finding the right investor? Did you do your homework or did you do a bit of research on these investors? How were you able to select the appropriate investors for your startup? Well, I think it was first a journey to pitching to a lot of people, institutions. And then I wouldn't say not much as a, a selection that you get a lot of offers and then you have to decide which one do you pick. But most of a, a connection that you have with the person that you think right for a startup and how you continue convincing them, talking to them into that this is the right choice, this is the right people that you need to work with. And you most probably also hear that they're enthusiastic about your proposition and that they really want to support you in getting that product to market instead of just investing you and seeing you as a vehicle for return on investment. Yeah, exactly. What advice would you give your fellow entrepreneurs? Well, I think the main advice would be to find the right partners to work with or to start this venture because you will have to work hard in the first months and then continue in the, in the path of the startup. But yeah, you need not only people that are good in, with technology, but also people that are good with other people <laughs> because you are starting a company, not just developing a product. So yeah, I think that would be my best advice to find the right team try to make uh, people from different backgrounds that can everyone give their share of knowledge into the company. If we go into that a bit deeper, I could imagine as a startup entrepreneur in a market with a scarcity of talent or the right quality, right? Especially talent with the right technological background. 
let's say you have an ambition to really hit the market in, let's say, six months, a year, a year and a half, and you have investors backing you, so they're expecting results. And here you are sitting across the table from a couple of professionals that are applying at your startup, but you just don't feel there's a match, yet there's scarcity of talent. How do you go about that? Well, I think finding the people with technological capabilities was not very difficult because my we are very involved with the university and with the top university in Peru. So we, as, as teachers, my partners, as, as professors, uh, were able to identify the right talent you know, with the high technical capabilities. But yeah, what was hard is maybe the soft capabilities that people need to have as well. Right? So when you work with people that are just out of the university and that have not worked maybe in another company full-time or have many big responsibilities, then you also need to teach them that process or be patient in that process of them developing their, their soft capabilities. Right. So you would say you would mainly look for the right hard skills and then you would take them on board and guide them through also the soft skills. Yeah. That makes sense. Thank you for that. So what are you extremely passionate about and will work on for the next five to 10 years and aspiration of helping our society? I think it's something simple for me is just continue working either companies or creating technology that will have an impact in society or the environment, right? It's one or other, just as simple as that as work towards that goal of having an impact, a good impact people. So you're extremely passionate about technology and the next five to 10 years, you will most certainly be involved in any technological proposition that is set out to create an impact for society. Yeah. And at the moment, this will be within the healthcare space or the med tech space and within your drone technology. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Thank you for sharing your lessons and amazing story, Monica. Before we wrap up this very interesting talk, for potential investors, strategic partners, and fellow entrepreneurs to reach out, where can they find you? So they can find us in our website, skydadrones.com. We're also in social media, in Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and skydadrones. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your lessons, Monica. I really appreciate it. Wish you all the best with the next steps for Kaira. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. It's been a great has been supported by the UNICEF Innovation Fund, which provides funding and technological capabilities for startups and companies that are using technology in innovative ways to improve the world. To apply for funding for your tech startup, visit unicefinnovation.org. To learn more about the current open calls of the UNICEF Office of Innovation, visit unicef.org innovation. My dear podcast listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. Make sure to share it with someone who's potentially interested in connecting with the startup. And if you want to learn more about upcoming valuable startup propositions and how they're impacting our society, make sure to subscribe here or follow our LinkedIn and Twitter page for updates. For more information on the firm behind this podcast, please visit www.racev.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, and until next time. 